As the ushers come forward, you can turn directly in your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 5. Uh, we are finishing this morning this kind of short little journey we've taken through uh, what I've called an essay that the Apostle John has written. It's really more than a letter. It's kind of an essay on the life, uh, not so much the life, but the ministry and the message of Jesus. And today we're going to read the fifth and final chapter, which is kind of the concluding. Let's wrap this puppy up. Let's see. Let's, let's boil it all down. We've said several times, John's goal has been to take all of the many messages and the many things that are being said in the world about Jesus and unravel them, uncomplicate them. Say, folks, this isn't as complicated as, as some would have you to believe. This is really the message of Jesus. The message of eternal life is very, very simple and straightforward. Not everything is a shade of gray. Some things are just plain old black and white. And so we called it uncomplicated because John has tried to uncomplicate matters again and again and again. And if you've journeyed with us through the past uh, four chapters, uh, you've seen that. Now, ironically, this fifth and final chapter in the uncomplicated essay is actually kind of complicated. Um, if, if not complicated, it's a little bit confusing, and there's a reason for that. The reason is that in this fifth chapter, you'll pick up on it if you haven't read it yet, in this fifth chapter, John addresses some very specific uh, societal issues that were going on in his day um, and here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe, and, and we don't really know for sure what those issues were. We don't know exactly what was going on in his day. Certainly his readers would have known exactly what he was talking about because they were, they were living it, but, but we, don't, we don't know for sure. Now, historians have some pretty good guesses on a few of these things, but there are a few references in these closing paragraphs they kind of remain a bit mysterious, and I'll try to point them out as we read and study together. Even so, though, even so, his bottom line conclusions, I think, remain pretty clear, pretty black and white, pretty uncomplicated. Let's hear what John has to say in conclusion today, reading from 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Huh? This is one of the parts I was talking about earlier. We'll get into it. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And there are three in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given us about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is 
is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write you these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Huh? We'll get back into that. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So dear children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the end of his essay. Now, one of the topics that John has addressed most frequently throughout the essay, I'm asking you to go back in your memory as we've read together all the way from the very beginning in chapter one. One of the things that he's addressed most frequently is our ability to love one another. And this has been a black and white issue for John. According to him, the people of God must always live lives that overflow with a singular defining love for God and for his people. In chapter two, we heard John say, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. In chapter three, we heard him say, anyone who does not love remains in death. In chapter four, we heard him say, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. But we've also acknowledged along the way that godly love is a tricky thing for us humans. It's not based on the warm, fuzzy feelings that the world talks about when the world talks about love. Godly love is based on consistent sacrificial commitment to action. Our feelings are much more fickle than that, aren't they? They aren't consistent and they tend not to be very sacrificial. If loving is so important and it's kind of hard for us fallen people, then how are we to love? And John says this, he says, the key to love, we've been talking about love, the key to love is obedience to God. It's, it's not the warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not the tickles or the tingles. It's not the feels. No, the key to love is obedience to God. He writes in verse three that we just read together. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And he goes on to explain that the commandments of God are not a burden that weigh us down. They are a life-giving path to true victory over the evil ways of the world. The good news today is that if we want to love the way that God wants us to love, the key is actually pretty uncomplicated. We don't have to force ourselves to generate fake emotions of warm, fuzzy feelings for everybody we meet. We don't have to live in fear of the idea that our fickle emotions might one day qualify, disqualify us 
from heaven. All we have to do to love as God is asking us to love. All we have to do is to submit ourselves to the life-giving commandments of the very one who created us to love. The commands of God, and and I hope you understand this because this transforms the way we think about the Bible. The commands of God, they aren't a buzzkill of of thou shalts and, and, and thou shalt nots. The commands of God are an instruction manual for love. Do we recognize that in scripture? How do we love one another? Lord says, well, this is how I've written it down. Follow, follow these steps and, and you will love. Follow these things and you will become the loving person that God designed you to be. Boy, can I just parenthetically say, isn't that precisely the opposite of what the world says about the word of God today? Oh, you're a Christian, are you? You do those things that make you a hater. There's a deep, deep irony in that, in that perspective. Because if we do them well, and can we acknowledge, I think in humility, we, the church, have not always done them well. But if we do them well, then we won't be the haters. We will be the people of love that God created us to be. You want to know how to love? John says it's really not very complicated. Just follow God's command. It's the instruction book on how to love well. Let's look at a second theme here. The second theme that's come up several times as we've read through the book is the theme of life. We started with love, we're moving on to life. How many times have we read a passage that refers to the life that God designed for us, this eternally flourishing, God-blessed, we use the, the Greek word Zoe, life. How you doing today, Zoe? Good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, we read in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter one that, that John's purpose was to proclaim to us the eternal life. Chapter two said, and this is what he promises us, eternal life. Chapter three says, we know that we have passed from death to, say it everybody, life, right? Life, life, life. We've read it again and again and again. But how, how do we enter into this life? I had people come and ask me after, after chapter one, sounds pretty good. How do I do it? Like, let's get down to brass tacks here. You know, how do we actually do this? And I will acknowledge it's awfully complicated to listen to a pastor like me preach some sort of vague message about Jesus wants you to have eternal life. And, you know, I can see the frustration on people going, you know, that sounds great, but how, 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 how do we do this? John uncomplicates the matter for us. He wraps up his essay by saying, we've been talking a lot about life. Let me boil it down to one principle for you. The key to life is belief in Jesus. The key to life is belief in Jesus. He said in verses 11 and 12, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. The life, the richness, the Zoe, the flourishing that God designed you for, it's found in no other, but only in the name of Jesus. There's no other way to that life. Jesus is the key to life. Now, this is part that I said, we're gonna have to dig a little bit deeper because the way John put it, got into that hole, there's three that testify and there's a spirit and he came by water and then he came by blood and we're thinking, ill. Um, But also, what does that mean? 
John was talking about the Spirit testifying to these things, and, and he brings up blood and water, and, and, and we don't, we don't, I, I didn't know, I didn't, what does this mean? There are plenty of theologians, there are plenty of historians, plenty of scholars that have done their research on, on the passages that we read together today. This is one of those passages in the Bible that, that everybody's got a little bit of a, a, a question about because it's not immediate clear, immediately clear. Uh, it doesn't make sense to our modern ears. It seems that John, it seems pretty clear that he was referencing, as I said, things that were going on in his day that his readers would have gone like, oh yeah, spirit, blood, water, got it, no problem. I understand. I get it. But we don't we don't know what was going on, and so we're not sure exactly what he was referring to. Uh, references that are timely like that tend to get lost to history. It would be like if I said to you today that, oh, you know, doing that would be like uh, trying to take the Eisenhower on a Friday afternoon. Now imagine 2,000 years later, a group of people have record that I just told you, you know, doing so, such and such would be like taking the Eisenhower on a Friday afternoon. Imagine the historians going, what was he talking about? I can imagine that one historian would look it up and say, you know, there was actually a great leader of their nation by the name of Eisenhower. And it wasn't more than a couple generations before Pastor Martinson said that. I'd like to think that they would have called me Pastor Martinson in the future. (laughs) Uh, Reverend, perhaps, I don't know. Um, and, And so when he said taking... Eisenhower on a Friday afternoon, you know, their president would have been surrounded by security. Kidnapping him would have been very difficult. So what he meant by taking the Eisenhower on a Friday afternoon is he meant doing that would be incredibly difficult. If not impossible, it would probably cost you your life. Another historian might look into it and go, no, 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 I've studied this. They actually had a roadway that connected them in Dodge Grove to the greatest city in the Midwest, home of the Bears. And um, the roadway they called the Eisenhower. They called it the Eisenhower. And it was a beautiful roadway. We have the archaeology. It was paved. It was like, you know, lane after lane. It was wide open. And, and taking the Eisenhower allowed these suburbanites within a matter of, of moments to be right in the heart of downtown. It was, It was a wonderful thing that their crude technology allowed them to do. It was so easy for them. So taking the Eisenhower on a Friday afternoon meant this is simple and easy and you don't have to worry about it. Can you imagine that a historian might think that's what I was talking about? But every one of you know that when I say taking the Ike on a Friday afternoon, you're like, well, that's going to be three hours. And you might get shocked. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's probably a bad idea. It's, it, we, we just don't know when we're looking back 2,000 years in history. We don't know what we don't know. But let me tell you what we, we do know. We do know that there were people alive in John's day, teachers even, within the context of the church, people who were saying things about Jesus that John didn't really agree with, and as we've noted, that's kind of the point of his letter. There were people then who were uncomfortable with the idea that God would go through the pain and humiliation of death by crucifixion. We know that there were people alive in John's region, in John's day, that were theorizing that Jesus of Nazareth was not born divine. He was born a man like any other, but that he became divine 
at the moment of his baptism, that at the moment he was baptized in water, that's when he became God. And then because God didn't want to get nailed to a cross, there was a moment just before the crucifixion, probably right about the time they pronounced him guilty and played the theme from Law and Order. Boom, boom. That boom, boom was the spirit of God leaving Jesus. And he once again became an ordinary man who went through the pain and humiliation of the crucifixion. And these teachers believed that because they couldn't, accept the idea that God himself would go through the humiliation of the cross. And so they believed that he, God, came by water, but not by the blood. God wouldn't do that. And in that line of thinking, what it means is that Jesus' miracles and teachings were the important part. Uh, the spiritual significance of his life was, was in the things that he said and did while he was doing his ministry. You know, it kind of sounds to me a lot like what a lot of people in the world today say, right? That Jesus was a great teacher with a very powerful spiritual side, very deeply in tune with his inner self or something like that. But he obviously wasn't God incarnate here to take the penalty for the sin of humanity. I mean, clearly that couldn't possibly be true. That's what the teachers in John's day were saying. And that's, I think, what we hear a lot of people today say. So against this line of thinking, John says that Jesus was, in fact, God wrapped in flesh. And he didn't come by water alone. In other words, he wasn't just divine in the great moments like the baptism. No, he came by water and by blood. In other words, God himself was just as present in the crucifixion as he was in the baptisms. And Jesus' miracles and his teachings, as great as they are, are of no value to us unless that same man broke the power of sin and death while hanging on a cross. John says that's the belief that we have to hold to. That is the key to life. You see, to take Jesus is to take all of him. We don't get to take the parts we're comfortable with and, and leave the challenging portions to the side. And likewise, to believe in Jesus is to believe in all of him. That's the key to the eternally blessed life that God designed for you. Here's one more way of thinking about it. I'm, I'm gonna do my best John impersonation here. I'm gonna be as blunt as I can. I'm gonna make this as clear and uncomplicated as I possibly can. Everything about your life will be best if you process every decision you ever make through a lens that says, I believe in Jesus. How does that impact what I'm about to do? I believe in Jesus, therefore I will. And when I say believe in Jesus, I don't mean, well, yeah, I mean, I read the Bible and yeah, in Jesus, okay, very good, let's sing a song and, and say amen. No, 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 no. I take him seriously. Do you understand what I'm saying there? I, I, I take him seriously. 
I take him at his word. When I read scripture and, and get to the part that doesn't make sense to me, I don't just put it aside and say, I'll, I'll leave somebody else to figure that out. When I read scripture and see something that doesn't fit my way of thinking, I don't accommodate it to my way of thinking. I submit myself to it because Jesus is Lord and I am not. What if everything we did, we processed through a lens that just said, I take Jesus seriously. I take Jesus seriously. John says, that's, that's the key to life. That's the key to life. I want to look at another theme that we've heard again and again in this essay. It's this idea that our lives can and, and really should change when we meet Jesus. Before Jesus, our lives were on a collision course with, with death. But meeting Jesus initiates a pivot point. It's a change in the way our lives are oriented, a change that marks the beginning of this eternal life that we've talked about. Remember, we said eternal life doesn't begin when I breathe my last. Eternal life begins when I submit, my, submit myself to my Lord and Savior Jesus. That's the beginning of, of eternal life, not, not physical death. In chapter 2, John said, everyone who does what is right has been born of him. In chapter 3, John said, no one, that, no one that lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He's talking about a change in the way we live our lives. In chapter 4, he said, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, well, then God lives in them. Talk about a change. God takes up residence in your whole life. There's a change that happens. We've heard about the change again and again and again. You know, this very same John in the gospel that, that he wrote about the life of Jesus, he recorded Jesus himself referring to this change as being born again. It was like a whole new life was beginning. And once we've experienced it, man, we, we hunger to see it happen for others people that we care about, people that we know, people that we love. And then after a while, we discover that we hunger to see it in the lives of people we didn't even think we liked. I just, I want to see Jesus change their life the way he's changed me. There's a change that happens. And once we've tasted of it, we want it for everyone else. What's the key to a change like that? Well, John says that the key to that kind of change is a boldness in prayer. This is where he's writing about praying for people who have committed sins. He says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in approaching God, that if we ask for anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we ask of him. And all the brand new baby Christians read those two verses all by themselves. And they say, cool, once I'm a Christian, I can ask God for anything I want. And he's got to give it to me. PlayStation 5, here I come. Is PlayStation 5 even the one that's out now? Somebody's got to check my work on that. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, my son says yes. Okay, then, yeah, there, there we go. Oh. But you and I are smarter than that, aren't we? I hope so. We know that's not how it works. Whether we have done the theology to figure out or we've just had our, our, our hopes dashed a couple of times, we know it's not, it's not that, no, just, just no, 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 that's, that's not how it works. So that can't possibly be what this passage means. 
If we go back, though, and we read it in its context, which we always need to do with Scripture, right? Read the entire paragraph. Read the entire chapter. What is John actually talking about here? If we do that, we recognize that he's talking about praying for people who haven't yet experienced that life change. Why? Because they haven't turned their lives fully over to Jesus. He makes those references about the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death. Elsewhere, the Bible refers, and people ask about this all the time, the the unforgivable sin. Is that what John is talking about here? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I've had more than a handful of people in my office through the years saying, Pastor, I'm worried. I might have done it. I might have done it. Oh, I'm going to burn. I might have done it. I might have done it. My theology, my response is, look, if you're worried that you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you obviously haven't blasphemed the Holy Spirit because he's the one that brings that conviction into our lives. So if you're worried about it, you're, you're all right. Let's start there. John's saying, look, sin without Jesus leads to death. And when somebody's without Jesus, I mean, let's just be uncomplicated about this. It's, it's not going to end well. No. It's not going to end well. He says, but we can pray. We can pray that there will be repentance in people's lives. We can pray that there will be an encounter with the living Christ in their life. We can pray that they will submit themselves. And we need to pray about that. That's the key to this kind of change. You might not realize it, but if you are a follower of Jesus today, Somebody prayed you into the kingdom. Amen. And most likely it was a whole long list of somebody's. None of us got here by our own smarts. None of us figured this out for ourselves. It might have been, in your case, a parent or a grandparent. It might have been a friend or a family member. Uh, maybe somebody put your name on a prayer list and a whole church of people that you didn't know about and never even met were praying you into the kingdom. But every one of us here got prayed into the kingdom. Some of us came kicking and screaming. I know because I saw it happen. But we got prayed into the kingdom. Here's the deal. Now that you're here, you get to do the same for somebody else. You get to do the same for somebody else. Over the course of your life, you'll get to do the same for lots of somebody else's. You get to pray for your kids. You get to pray for your grandkids, for your neighbors, for your coworkers, and anybody that you can think of. You get to pray them into the kingdom. You get to grab that church prayer list and go, Bobby, I don't know who that Bobby is, but I'm going to bring him before your throne right now, Lord. I'm going to pray him into the kingdom. Somebody put that name there, so I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to pray that person into the kingdom. You get to meet the missionary. Get on their, their mailing list so that they email you the names of people they're serving with, and you can pray them into the kingdom. I might be in Downers Grove. They might be in South Africa. Their name might be Spain. It doesn't matter. I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. You can go to the park and sit on the bench at the park and say, Holy Spirit, I just want you to place somebody on my heart right now. And the Holy Spirit will go, that's the one right there. And you say, I'm not going to be weird. I'm going to introduce myself to him, but I'm going to sit right here on this bench and I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. God, I pray that you knock them down with your presence today. I'm going to pray them into the kingdom. That's what we get to do. We get to pray each other into the kingdom. How many of us would say we want to live to see the world change? Any John Mayer Mayer uh, fans in here? You know, waiting, waiting on the world to change. You got me, Carmen? Can you? Okay. Okay. 
We, we, want, we want to see the world change, don't we? It's kind of a human thing. We want to see the world change. We want to see peace in the Middle East. We want to see an end to homelessness. We want to see energy independence. We want to see free college tuition. We want to see a diet soda that has great taste and no calories with no artificial sweeteners. We want to see the world change. Now, there's nothing wrong with cultivating a passion for a good cause that you believe in. There are godly and important things happening in this world, issues that deserve our attention. But I want to say this, and I'm so glad our missionary said it today before I said it. Nothing deserves more focus and more attention than praying boldly for lost people to meet Jesus. Nothing is more important than that. Can I, can I say something here that I hope it doesn't ruffle your feathers, but I hope it provokes some thought. I feel very deeply and passionately about the issue of abortion. But man, it's not more important than lost people coming to know Jesus. Uh, the issues surrounding traditional marriage, human trafficking. There's a movie out now. Many of you have seen it and told me about it. Uh, peace and justice around the world. These things are important. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm saying not one of them is more important than the issue of lost people coming to Jesus. Not one thing is more important than the issue of lost people coming to Jesus. And you know why? I can prove it to you. Do you know why? Because nothing changes this world more than when a lost person encounters their savior. Nothing changes this world more powerfully than when a lost person encounters their savior. And the key to that change is our boldness in prayer. All of those other things that we hope for and that we pray for and that we work toward and that are passion for us. Again, I'm not trying to say the old, old, forget about it, forget about it, forget about it. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying keep it in its proper place. All those things will change. When? Not when we vote the right guy into Congress or when we change the laws to the land. No, no, no. They'll change when lost people come by the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands and they call on the name of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see the world change then. Let me tell you that. You'll see the world change then because evil can't stand. It can't stand in his presence. So pray for lost people. Pray for lost people. I want to look at one more theme in our study. We've encountered it again and again, and John's going to wrap it up by wrapping it up for us. He's encouraged us repeatedly that there's no reason for us to worry about the unknown. He's spoken several times and used the word confidence. In chapter 2, he said, when Jesus appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. In chapter 3, he said, what we will be has not yet been made known. Knowledges we don't know. But he said, but we do know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. Chapter 4, he said, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. Confidence. Must be nice, huh? Must be nice. How can we be so sure? How do we know that the devil hasn't got one more trick up his sleeve and he's not going to get us in the end? Well, John has a key for that. John says the key to confidence is faithfulness to the truth faithfulness to the truth and of course specifically he's talking about the truth about Jesus in uh, the community where we live uh, we, we live in Naperville but it's, it's unincorporated Naperville so it's actually the DuPage County Sheriff who patrols our neighborhood and 
couple times a year, we get a notice from the DuPage County Sheriff that there has been a rash of thefts, break-ins to vehicles in our neighborhood. Nobody's stealing cars, but overnight, they break into cars that have been left out on the driveway or on the street, and they steal whatever they can from inside, um, inside the cars. And apparently, this kind of comes in waves and happens two or three times a year. I'm kind of curious to see if we'll get another notice now that Jessica has moved on to college. Um, <laughs> But every once in a while, we get this notice from the sheriff saying, you know, there's been this crime wave, please be careful. I always take special notice of this because I tend to leave my car in the driveway. Uh, and so I leave it there. But I've noticed that on these notices we get from the sheriff, it says the overwhelming majority of thefts occur in vehicles that were left unlocked. People leave their cars out, they leave it unlocked, and you know whoever goes by and, and opens it and they take whatever they take. People are not smashing windows and grabbing things. It's occurring in unlocked vehicles. And so I always make a mental note, keep my car locked when I park it on the driveway for the evening. And I do, I lock my car on the driveway every day. Don't come to my house and try and steal anything from my car. You'll find that it's locked. I, I lock it every day. Almost. The conviction of the Lord just came upon me. Every once in a while, I wake up at two or three in the morning and all of a sudden I think, I don't think I locked my car. And there have been a couple of times I've woken up in the morning and gone out to get in my car and gone, boop, you know what? I didn't lock my car last night. I didn't lock my car. Let me ask you this. I've been lucky so far. But what if, what if, just, just for, for kicks, what if, that day was the day that in the middle of the night in the darkness somebody came and and opened my door and found it unlocked and helped themselves to whatever it was that I had left. If on that day I awoke and found that my car had been broken into, would it matter that I had locked it every other day of the week? No, it wouldn't. What's the key? The key is consistency and faithfulness. It doesn't help to lock your car once in a while. It doesn't help to lock your car when convenient. It doesn't help to lock your car only when you've gotten a notice from the sheriff's department, but assume everything's okay the rest of the year. No, if you want your car to be secure, you lock it every day, again and again and again. Like an unlocked car in the driveway, Consistency is, is, is the key in our spiritual lives. Only by being faithful to the discipline of every day, every day, every day walking in Christ can we be confident. It's the same way with living the Zoe life that God has designed for us. Living that life every day, day after day after day, it grows our confidence. It makes me confident that my, my eternity is secure. But when I live that life only when convenient, when I'm tossed back and forth by the waves of change in this world, when I run to God only when I'm scared, but I live in my own strength the rest of the time, these are the things that erode our confidence in the promises of God. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered that for the most part, people don't walk away from their faith once they stop trusting God. I've discovered it actually works the other way around. See if you follow me here. I've discovered that people stop trusting God after they've walked away from their faith. 
maybe they didn't walk away all the way at once. Maybe they stepped aside for a while and then they, they ran to it when things got a little bit tough, but then they got comfortable and they looked to the world for another while longer and they locked their doors one night, but they didn't lock their doors quite so much the next night and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it's not like they're all out backsliding, but there's no faithfulness and there's no consistency. And just like my unlocked car in the driveway, that's an invitation for the enemy to break in and steal the treasure that God has given to us. The treasure of hope, the treasure of confidence, the treasure of faith, the treasures of his promises and his victory in our lives. And once those things are gone, it seems like life is the same as it ever was and the love of Jesus just feels like a distant, distant memory. If you feel like that today, or if you've recently felt like that, hey, if you've ever felt like that, I think we can address that just before we give the dismissal today. I think we can address it once and for all. I'm going to ask the team to come on because they're going to give us a little bit of music as we pray here at the end of service. I was reminded as I wrote my closing notes here of the parable that Jesus tells, the story that he tells about a man who was uh, investigating some land for sale and he discovered in this particular field that there was buried treasure nobody else knew it but the guy in the in the market found out there's buried treasure in that field over there jesus said that buried treasure is kind of like the gospel he discovered the gospel he discovered this 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 wealthy treasured gift jesus said what the man did next is kind of interesting he discovered the treasure, but as soon as he discovered it, he dug a hole and he buried it again so it would remain a secret. Now, if you're with me and you're reading that, that parable, you're thinking, ah, he did the wrong thing because when you find the gospel, you're supposed to pick it up and tell everybody, I found the gospel, and you're supposed to share your faith and do everything with everybody. Are you tracking with me? But Jesus says, uh-uh-uh, Dan, you've missed the point. He said he buried the treasure again. And then he went and he sold everything that he had. He liquidated every asset that he had so he could go back and buy that field using every penny to his name so that he could buy that field before somebody else found out what it was really worth. Because once he bought that field, he would be the owner of the treasure. It's kind of an interesting story, kind of an odd story. In those days, there would have been no banks. There wasn't. If he had taken the treasure when he first found it, he would have been guilty of stealing. He couldn't do that. He had to buy the whole field so he would have what was valuable and important to him. And in order to do that, he had to make sure it was secure. I am convinced that there are people throughout Christendom and even in this room today, who have discovered the treasure of salvation, but we haven't kept it secure. We've left our car unlocked, or we left it laying out in the field where we found it. Pick your metaphor, whatever you want, whatever works for you, it's fine. We haven't been faithful to it. We haven't cared for it. We haven't stewarded it well. We haven't cultivated it. And so we show up to a church service like this and we, we see these guys up here singing and dancing and, and acting like the crew they are. 
we look up and down the aisles and we see, uh, you know, a saint that we respect with their hands in the air. You know, we see the things we see at church and we go, I don't get it. I don't get it. It just, it, it, it never did that for me. And then the pastor gets to this moment in, in the sermon and he gives the invitation and everybody puts their heads down and closes their eyes. And you know what we do? Because we want it. We want it. We raise our hand. And then in three or four weeks, he gives the invitation. We raise your hand again. Maybe it didn't take. I don't know. Maybe I gotta raise the other hand this time. I'm not sure. I'm gonna raise them both. I wanna give an altar call today. I'm gonna ask Carmen to sing one song. Then I'm going to give an altar call. And I'm going to ask you to respond. But I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to make it a different kind of altar call. I'm going to make it as uncomplicated as I can. If you're responding to the altar call today, I want you to say, this is my last one. I'm never going to lift my hand again. I'm never going to ask again. Because I've read John's essay. I know it's not that complicated. I know it's not as as difficult as I've made it. I'm going to respond today to the Word of God. I'm going to take that treasure and I'm going to care for it every day of my life. Let me tell you right now. I leave my car unlocked once in a while. You're allowed to goof up. You're allowed to fail. But if you do, you pick yourself back up and you say, God, let's keep working on this. Let's keep working on this. But you know what you don't need? You don't need to answer the altar call anymore. Because your eternal life has begun. It's begun. Would you ask the Holy Spirit to uncomplicate and clarify a few of the things that I've just said? As Carmen leads us through this song.